You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Digital technology is expanding rapidly and high demand for those products is putting enormous pressure on global supply chains. One area that has exhibited major bottlenecks is in semiconductors, the computer chips that power the digital revolution. Everything from cars and manufacturing facilities to smartphones require chips, and shortages in that area has slowed production and imperiled economic activity. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Jeremy Mark is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He works with the Geoeconomic Center and writes on U.S.-China relations. Emily Kelkreis is a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. She writes about national security, international trade, and economic statecraft. So Jeremy and Emily, welcome to our Tech Tank podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So I'd like to start with you, uh, Emily. In an earlier incarnation, you served as Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative. So you clearly have lots of experience on international trade and commerce. How big of a problem are the computer chip shortages that we have seen in recent years? Yeah, it's a good question. And certainly a lot of people are thinking about chips right now because of the supply chain shortages. Given the importance of chips in pretty much every sector of our economy and the fact that our economy is becoming increasingly digitized, the supply shortages are a real problem. We've heard a lot about supply shortages in particular in the auto sector. But I think as the ongoing pandemic continues to stress supply chains, as demand for these chips continues to grow significantly, we can expect to see more of these shortages. And we'll see a lot of work from governments and the private sector to try to, to catch up. It's a difficult problem to try to solve, given how long it takes to bring new capacity online for new chip production, but certainly something that a lot of people in, in D.C. and in the private sector are, are keenly focused on right now. So what do you see, Emily, as the source of these shortages? Like, why have we ended up in the situation where we are right now? There's a few discrete uh, incidents that we can uh, point to, and some of these were laid out, I think, quite well in the White House's initial supply chain report um, that came out at the beginning of the Biden administration. For example, there was a fire at a key production facility in Texas. There is just a lot of strain, candidly, uh, from the pandemic, which is causing kinks in all sorts of, of global supply chains. There was also a little bit of a mismatch, candidly, between certain sectors that are dependent on chips, such as the auto sector, 
who anticipated that demand was going to go down during the pandemic. And then it rebounded much more quickly than they expected. So they didn't get their orders in in time um, to actually have those ships come out. There is kind of this friction right now where the pandemic really just skewered a lot of planning processes, a lot of supply chains in a context where chip demand was already going up and we were already racing to kind of meet capacity. And so those sorts of you know, hiccups in the, the supply chain can have some pretty broad ripple effects when combined. So Jeremy, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. So most of the advanced chips are manufactured in Taiwan uh, and South Korea, both very sensitive locations from a geopolitical standpoint. How worried should the United States be about our dependence on those two places? Well, Daryl, thanks for having me today. You know, the short answer to your question is that the U.S. should be very worried about this focus of our, our demand for semiconductors from Taiwan and, and South Korea. I think there's there's a broader context, obviously, that these are two countries that are very closely aligned with the U.S. politically. We have just seen a nuclear-armed country, Russia, invade a democratic country, Ukraine, and this has obviously given much more attention to the proximity of South Korea to North Korea and Taiwan to mainland China. 92% of the most advanced chips in the world are made in Taiwan and South Korea, largely in Taiwan, and, and most of those essentially within easy range of China's short-ranged uh, missiles. So I think the U.S. has to be concerned simply because such an important production base for semiconductors is in such an exposed position. And we're talking about everything from the brains for electric vehicles, cloud servers, cyber currency miners, U.S. Air Force F-35 fighters, and the chips in the supercomputers that drive U.S. weapons research. So yes, the U.S. should be concerned, but it's not just Taiwan and South Korea, because these two countries are at the center of an international supply chain centered in East Asia that extends from Japan all the way down through Singapore. This is a very tightly integrated supply chain, and any geopolitical tensions, any military issues would have implications for, for all of these places. So, Jeremy, you mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that war has led to economic sanctions on Russia and limits on the export of computer chips there. How might this war and the resulting sanctions affect semiconductor production and trade? The, I think that the, the primary impact of the war has to do with the raw materials that come out of both Russia and Ukraine that feed into this global supply chain for semiconductor production. The sales to Russia and the sanctions are relatively small. They're important. The chips that have been cut off come from largely from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which is the probably the single most important producer of, of the most advanced chips in the world. But there, they were supplying chips that go into Russian guided missiles and other weaponry. But overall, that was a tiny amount of chips, about $24 million from a company that, that produces uh, revenue each year of about $50 billion. 
the the more impact has to do on do with the with what's coming out of the two countries. The, Russia is a major producer of palladium and nickel, which go into different aspects of semiconductor production. There are no sanctions, as far as that I'm aware of, on purchases of these, but there is concern that, you know, that these supplies may be affected. Probably most immediately, the biggest issue is that Ukraine is a key supplier of neon, which is used to produce gases that, that control the the highly sophisticated lasers that that go in that that are involved in in etching and and lithography in chip making there are two factories in ukraine that provide much of the neon in the world one is in mariupol which of course has you know been facing this awful onslaught from the russian military and the other is in odessa which was a uh a key target of the early stages of the Russian invasion, although it, it seems to be less threatened at the moment. That is an interesting angle. I actually had not heard about the neon production coming out of Ukraine, but clearly that's something everyone should keep their eye on. So I know each of you write about geopolitics, and there are lots of tensions and stresses going on in various places around the world. Emily, let, let me start with you. How is geopolitics impinging on uh, chip production? And then Jeremy, I'll ask you to answer the same question. Yeah, it, it's a great question because when you think about the global supply chain for semiconductors and you think about where we have the most fraught geopolitical relationships, there's unfortunately a lot of overlap uh, between those two buckets. Um, so you have the United States, which is a leader in some design and many parts of the value chain. And then, of course, you have China. Um, which is one of the world's largest importer of chips, primarily because of its role as an electronics assembly hub. And China also putting in just a ton of money, subsidies, government support, industrial policy to, in its own words, kind of dominate the, the global uh, semiconductor supply chain moving forward. They see their reliance on foreign uh, supply of semiconductors as a strategic vulnerability. So they want to fix that. But of course, in order for them to fix that, that means reducing the role um, and the leadership role of the United States and its allies. So you can, can easily see why this causes um, some pretty fraught dynamics. On top of that, I mean, semiconductors, as we've been talking about, are in pretty much everything that we use in our modern economy. And so it's not as if the United States can just let China grow in this sector and, and, and take a dominant role, because that would be pretty uh, detrimental to our own national security and economic security. And so that is why, you know, when we're talking about geopolitics and, and economic security, this kind of new new concept of economic security that, that, that folks keep bringing up, and it's actually in the, the, the interim national security strategy where we say national security is economic security. Chips are kind of the poster child uh, for, for what we're talking about. So, Jeremy, how do you see geopolitics impinging on chip production? Well, I, I see it exactly as Emily sees it. Let me develop a couple of points. The, the U.S. sees, as Emily was saying, the U.S. sees China's efforts to develop advanced technology as a as a threat across a range of industries. Obviously, weaponry, telecommunications, the use of big data and artificial intelligence. Even if you look further ahead, there are, there are, there are geopolitical implications for something like monetary policy, because if you take a look at the competition that's now emerging to issue central bank digital currencies, where China is certainly in the lead at the moment, I mean, all of this is going to revolve around chips in one way or another, the use of 
of big data to to introduce new controls to monetary policy that have not been possible. That's just one example. So I think that when the U.S. looks at these this kind of competition, it inevitably looks at the role of Taiwan and South Korea, and particularly Taiwan. China does not have the capability to produce advanced chips. And I'm talking about the kinds that are produced in the fabs of TSMC and Samsung, and to a lesser extent, Intel in the United States. It relies on supplies of a wide range of advanced logic chips from Taiwan, TSMC, and a fabulous a chip designer called MediaTek in Taiwan are are linchpins to China's efforts to advance its its technological capabilities. The U.S. and I'm sure we'll get into is the U.S. has imposed controls going back to the last year of the Trump administration on the sales of these advanced logic chips across a range of industries and capabilities to China. TSMC, <coughs> excuse me, MediaTek have both fallen under the, the, the umbrella of these U.S. export controls. And in a sense, Taiwan has, has become very much a centerpiece of, of these, uh, semiconductor, these semiconductor geopolitics. Taiwan is, is acutely aware of this. In fact, they often talk about their industry as functioning as a silicon shield against uh, Chinese military adventurism. By the same token, this economic relationship, which is very much built around the sale of billions of dollars of semiconductors to China, has almost become a stabilizing factor in the in the cross-straits geopolitical calculus, because China is so heavily dependent on Taiwanese chips, even though they've lost access to some of them, that it, it actually can function as, as a break on, on Chinese aggressive actions toward Taiwan, including things well short of, of military activity. For example, China has imposed over the past few years various economic sanctions of their own against Taiwan, affecting things like exports of fruits, limiting tourism from the mainland to Taiwan, which has an impact on on the Taiwanese economy, but they have never imposed any sort of controls on electronics exports to the mainland from Taiwan. So, so you know, this this geopolitical competition and its impact on semiconductors can actually work both ways at times. So, Emily, I know that you write about U.S.-China relations as well. How do you see the current tensions in that relationship affecting chip production in the future? Yeah, it's a that's a big question to unpack. And, you know, I might just kind of start by keying off of, of, of what Jeremy just said uh, in terms of this idea of whether the interdependence, because we are incredibly interdependent right now with, with China when it comes to chip production, when you look across the, the value chain, if you're going from you know, raw materials to end electronic products, there is no question that we are mutually dependent on each other right now. I do think there's a really interesting question to think about moving forward about whether that integration is uh, a deterrent to more active sorts of conflict and tension, or whether it's a massive vulnerability. Before you know, the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think a lot of people were more bought into the idea of, you know, stability and peace through economic integration. But I think, obviously, it's a different context. But I do think that theory is being pretty severely tested right now. At the same time, we haven't seen China actively support Russia. And it is possible that they 
would be more actively supporting them, if not for concerns about jeopardizing their chip supply chain. And so when you kind of think about it in that context, I think this is an area where we need to, to watch really, really carefully. Think about what the Chinese incentives are. Think about how they react to their vulnerability on foreign chip supply, as well as how our vulnerability in terms of our dependence on sales to China impacts our own national security. That's a really tangled web of incentives um, and deterrent effects that we need to think about. Um, but I do think that is one of the most critical questions that we can be thinking about moving forward. The, la the last point I'll, I'll make on this, you know, in the United States, there is kind of this increasing call for more restrictions, more export controls, potentially investment controls on U.S. support to China for its indigenous chip production. I think there is growing appetite in the United States to really have a more robust decoupling, for lack of a better word, particularly on non-commodity type chips and, and supporting China's ability to produce those chips homegrown. I think as you continue to see that move towards more separation, moved in the United States towards more domestic production, providing our own industrial subsidies for domestic chip production in the United States, that is only going to intensify China's existing desire to have its own homegrown capability. And so you're going to have, I think, pretty strong incentives on both sides to kind of withdraw within their own geographic borders a bit, build their own capabilities, and try to reduce some of those mutual dependencies. And then we'll have to, again, look at kind of what, the question, what, what that means for that interdependence and whether that lessening interdependence, if that's indeed what we see over the next five to 10 years, what impact that has on the stability of the relationship, if it is indeed providing some kind of helpful ballast at, at the current time. So, Jeremy, how do you see this decoupling uh, possibility? Do you envision that China and the United States and perhaps some other countries will go their own way? Is the long production time required to uh, develop new manufacturing facilities such that that is not an immediate issue? I, I think it's a very, very difficult goal to achieve, and that's an understatement. As Emily pointed out, these industries are, are incredibly integrated. China is as important as many other countries in, in semiconductor production, particularly when you get to the, the sort of the latter stages of production, things like testing, packaging, etc. And, and particularly because so many of the chips, once they are completed, then go into electronics products produced literally by millions of Chinese factory workers. So yeah. Untangling this is it, it, it is is far easier to talk about than to achieve. You know th this this supply chain, this value chain, has been built up over thirty plus years, and it has involved the investment of untold hundreds of billions of dollars across so many countries. To bring it back to the U.S. is is certainly a very complicated process. It's estimated if the U.S. were to want to have a completely localized semiconductor production chain, it would cost between three hundred billion and one trillion dollars, probably closer to the the larger figure. So it's it's really not something that is feasible in that sense. What the U.S. can do is to take steps to 
broaden the the key stages of production of the most important chips. And what's going on, I think, is a very important process that's just beginning. Where Samsung already produces large amounts of chips in the United States, they're now doubling their investment to produce more here. TSMC is in the process of building its first advanced chip fab in Phoenix. This is going to basically be producing chips that are two to three generations more advanced than anything Intel is capable of doing now. And TSMC is talking about building as many as five more fabs in the Phoenix area. Intel, meanwhile, is is eager to, to take advantage of the Biden administration's strong support for revitalizing the industry with incentives and subsidies. We are in the final stages of seeing legislation move through the U.S. Congress. The, the, both houses have passed bills that provide roughly $52 billion in support for, for this effort to build up production of current generations. And there's, there is money in some of the bills which would provide far larger sums for advanced R&D for later generations of chips and other technologies. So Intel, which has been slowed in recent years in the race to keep up with TSMC and Samsung, is going to be gaining access to important sources of, of, of money that would essentially level the playing field for investments. But I think Samsung and TSMC are also going to be able to tap into some of these incentives. And that's to the advantage of the United States to do this. But there's still a far cry from that to having a, a localized semiconductor production chain here in this country. The U.S. produces zero silicon wafers. It imports them all. Large amounts of key semiconductor manufacturer equipment are produced um, outside this country. One set of devices only is made by a company in the Netherlands. The Japanese are producing uh, SME as well that the U.S. relies on. And then you get into things like the gases like neon and, and, and specialty chemicals, etc. So it's a, a process that can reduce dependence on specific production sites in Asia, but will not create an independent supply chain. So I'd like to close with the discussion of possible solutions. I mean, Jeremy started to get into some of the scenarios that are on the table, but uh, Emily, how can we deal with the chip shortage and the underlying factors that are leading to shortages? Should the U.S. be investing more to improve its own domestic chip production capabilities? Yeah. Thanks. And I, I should just start by saying I totally agree with everything that Jeremy just said in terms of the economic infeasibility and also from a security perspective, totally not necessary to have an autarky situation for our semiconductor value chain. You know, our objective when we think about what is in the best economic and national security uh, interest of the United States is to reduce the vulnerability of supply chains that run through China, reduce the vulnerability associated with extreme geographic concentration of leading edge ships in Taiwan. But that leaves a whole lot of other countries and a whole lot of other uh, pieces of the supply chain that we can be relying on for secure, uh, reliable access uh, to chips in all parts of the value chain. So I do very much agree with Jeremy on that. Um, 
in terms of where we go from here, I, I do think there is uh, quite a bit of, of goodness in the bills on the Hill right now that are hopefully moving to conference and through conference soon to, to actually come into law that gets at a lot of the right answers here. I mean, there's a lot in those packages about the need for better data analysis and projection. I think there could probably be more on that as the government is seeking to more actively engage in what are essentially private sector supply chains. It's critically important that they are able to have a fully full and very detailed picture of what the supply chains are now, who is producing what and where, and most importantly, have an ability to project what U.S. needs will be for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And that long-term projection capability is really important given how long it takes to actually set up new capacity. And so as we think about that projection, as we think about that data mapping, we should be thinking about capabilities in the United States, but we should also be thinking about capabilities in our close partners who are also really critically important nodes in the overall value chain. And so that's kind of a first step. We need to have that really comprehensive picture. I do think that part of the answer is domestic production of certain key capacities. I think the CHIPS Act funding is a really good idea. I think as commerce, hopefully, you know, as that funding is hopefully uh, finally approved and commerce moves towards the implementation phase, I do think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of having very clear criteria for the sorts of investments that will be supported and how those investments really can bend supply chains away from China so that we really are getting at some of the security aspects of the value chain problems that we're facing today. Lastly, I'll also just note, like, there's been so much focus on the fabs and production. And in some respects, that's really justified, particularly because the U.S. share of manufacturing capacity has dropped significantly. But we also shouldn't forget about the rest of the value chain, which is really important. You know, we will continue to be reliant on other countries for the rest of the value chain as well. And so we need to think about besides fabbing, besides production, are there other aspects of that ecosystem that are important to have at home or where we need to work with allies to make sure we have reliable access. And so it's, it's a much more complicated picture when you look at it um, holistically. So there's, there's a lot that, that, that does need to be done there. I do think that both the, the congressional efforts and how the administration is thinking about it are kind of going in the, the right direction, but it is, it is kind of a hugely complicated issue to, to work through. And then lastly, on your point about the, the supply chain shortages, you know, I think it's important to, to, to know that all of the stuff that we're talking about now is more of a mid to long-term solution. Some of that short-term supply chain, the problems, they're not going to be fixed by the CHIPS Act, just given the differential in time between, you know, when those chips are needed, which is yesterday, and how long it'll take to produce a new fab. So in terms of the supply chain shortages, I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of this is the private sector just kind of having to prioritize a bit and and kind of grit through it a little bit. Maybe Jeremy has some some better ideas on that. But I do think we need to be realistic about um, the fact that most of this stuff is a a longer time horizon. Yeah, those are all uh, great points. Uh, So Jeremy, uh, she put you on the spot. Uh, How do you think uh, the U.S. should deal with these uh, chip uh, shortages and some of the underlying factors that are leading to the shortages? I, I don't think there's an easy solution uh, to any of the of these shortages. You know, the shortages are only lengthening in many respects, and and they turn up in in places that you know you wouldn't think about. For example, 3M has a factory in Belgium that produces the bulk of a specific specialty gas used in chip production. They're facing the need to shut down that plant in order to introduce new environmental controls to meet standards set by the Belgian government. 
Well, that then echoes down through the whole supply chain. That's just one example of many that occur regularly in such a sophisticated supply chain. So I, I, I don't think you can hold out hope that there are short-term solutions except in specific areas. Let me, if I can, just come at a couple of, of, of other points. Emily really stated the, the issue very, very clearly. Let me develop the point about other countries and allies. This, this is a really important point particularly because this has such serious geopolitical implications, cooperation with like-minded governments is essential. We, we saw a situation around 2019 where the comfort woman issue from World War II, where Japanese army abducted large numbers of, of young women throughout East Asia and Force them to serve as as, as in, in brothels, etc. That has been an issue of great concern in South Korea and other countries and became a, a bone of contention with Japan in 2019. As a result of that, Japan cut off South Korea's access to, to various inputs to semiconductor production, and the Trump administration did very little to try and address. That's just one example of the kinds of tensions that can then impede these, the, the, this kind of production. The Biden administration, to its credit, came to office and immediately set about enhancing cooperation in East Asia, reducing frictions. And this is essential. It's essential from a, from a geopolitical point of view. It's essential from an industrial point of view. And their closer cooperation is very, very important at this point to address a lot of these supply chain issues, to ensure that if all governments are investing in expanding a semiconductor capacity, that there is some degree of interaction so that we don't see buildup in oversupply at a later stage when the inevitable cyclical downturn occurs in, in the semiconductor industry. That's one point I want to make. The, the other has to do with Chinese production of semiconductors. The focus, and I've been guilty of this in this conversation, the focus is on the most advanced chips. But China is putting hundreds of billions of dollars into a range of technologies. And what they're doing with semiconductors is that they can't get access to the, the kinds of semiconductor manufacturing equipment that allows them to produce the advanced chips is they're putting money into older generations, what are called mature nodes of semiconductors. And they um, right now there's probably between 60 and 100 new fabs being built in China. And a lot of this is going to be to produce the chips that have been in shortage in the last couple of years for automobiles, for medical devices, a whole range of much simpler technologies. We're, we could face a situation, and this is something I'm just starting to sort of think about and research. We could face a situation where China is highly dependent on its neighbors and other countries for certain kinds of chips, and we become more dependent on China for older technologies of semiconductors. We've seen China in a range of industries ranging from steel to solar panels invest huge amounts of money overproduce and dominate a 
the global. Could this happen with simpler older generations of chips where we suddenly become highly dependent on Chinese supplies? Does China look at this and say that this can create a, a, a geopolitical advantage for us? These, these are just questions, things I'm thinking about, but I, I think it's something that has to be taken into consideration as we continue to, to do all of this planning and, and this data collection that Emily's talking about. Well, those are uh, clearly uh, uh, very important points there, uh, lots of scenarios uh, going forward. But I want to thank uh, both Emily and Jeremy for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brickings, we write regularly about digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.